fascinating facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. It's a Eucharistic Thursday. It's September the 28th, 2023. So glad that you're with me right now on The Kale Clark Show. And right now, you can pick up your phone, call this number, 888-914-9149. Toll free to talk to me. Can't wait to hear from you, your questions, your comments. Another place you can do this, of course, is via email. Send me an email at kale at relevantradio.com. That's the email address, kale, C-A-L-E, at relevantradio.com. And find me on the X app at Kale Clark. Well, we have a lot to talk about today. It's actually a pretty interesting feast day. I know it's the feast of St. Wenceslas, good King Wenceslas, as it were. But we're not going to talk about him. We are going to talk about somebody else. Did you know? Did you know? that Jesus Christ became a Filipino. I didn't say that, but maybe the greatest saint of the 20th century did say that. I'll, I'll tell you who later on. We, we have a lot of Filipino Catholic listeners all over the world and also in the United States. Um, wow, the faith of the Filipino people is such a huge factor in the Catholic Church. going to talk about the Filipino proto-martyr. This is really intriguing stuff. That's all coming up later. But first, I, I want to get into this. And once again, that phone number, 888 on the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. The conversation I had a few days ago with Rabbi Jason Sobel, seeing the New Testament, seeing Jesus through Jewish eyes, a lot of you guys, you're still messaging me about that and how much you enjoyed that conversation. I appreciate that a lot. I appreciate that a lot. And if you missed that, uh, check the archives on the Relevant Radio app for this program. It is there. I really enjoyed that conversation as well with Rabbi Jason. He's a great, great guy. Keep praying for him. I want him to experience our Eucharistic Lord. I want him to get the fullness of the faith. Uh, He's, of course, a Messianic rabbi. And uh, we were talking off air, Rabbi Jason and I, about the work of uh, a, a great writer, a great scholar, and both of us really, really are into this guy. And you should be too. Dr. Brandt. Petre. Now, if you don't know who Dr. Brandt Petre is, uh, he's a really great writer and speaker. I, I think he's, he's also a scholar. I think he is the best young Catholic scholar in America. I know there's a lot of great scholars out there, but for my money, I think Brandt Petre is top of the top. And he teaches at the Augustine Institute. So that, and that's a, a grad school that I highly recommend. If you're thinking about going on and doing studies, maybe doing a master's degree, uh, check out the Augustine Institute. They do phenomenal, phenomenal work. One of the books that Dr. Brent Petre wrote, and I was talking about this with Rabbi Jason, is called Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. Now, uh, this was published by Doubleday, and you should be able to, actually, I've seen copies in parishes too. It's kind of a partnership with Lighthouse Catholic Media um, where they make copies of this book available for very, very low price. So you might be able to, to get your hands on one of those uh, that way. If you're looking for a book, as we're preparing for next year's National Eucharistic Congress in Indianapolis at Lucas Oil Stadium, I'm calling it the Super Bowl of the church. It's going to be awesome. I'll be there. All the relevant radio personalities will be there. Of course, Father Rocky will be there as well, live family rosary across America. 
from Lucas Oil Stadium. It's going to be phenomenal. I can't wait. And you can get, I'll give you more information in a few minutes about how you can get great travel packages to get there and join us. But uh, one book that you might want to pick up and read to sort of buttress your faith in the Eucharist, to, to enrich your faith in the Eucharist, it is this book by Dr. Brent Petre, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. Now, there's actually like an academic version of this book that's out there as well. So if you really want some heavy lifting, um, it's, it's even more comprehensive. It's called Jesus and the Last Supper. And really what, what this book is, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, is kind of the, the more popular version of that. But one of the interesting things that he talks about in, in this book is what kind of Messiah were the Jewish people waiting for in the first place? And one of the things that he says, now, he is really an expert on this because he did his doctoral studies on what's called Second Temple Judaism. So this is basically the Jewish environment that was in effect when Jesus was on the earth. And so this is sort of the situation that Jesus was in, the Second Temple. What does that refer to? Of course, that's the temple that was standing in Jerusalem when Jesus was going there himself for all the great feasts of the faith, the Old Covenant faith. And of course, the first temple, the temple that was built by King Solomon, was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. Uh, the Jews were carried off into exile. It was, a, it was a disaster. We talked about this a little bit yesterday, and that's why we've been hearing readings at Mass from the book of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah, it's all about how they came back. King Cyrus, the Persian, let them go. He conquered the Babylonians and said, you guys can go back home, rebuild the temple, rebuild the city. But the second temple was what was, in effect, the temple that, that came next. And they built this temple, and then, of course, Herod came along, Herod the Great, and kind of took it to another level and just made it really, really spectacular, one of the wonders of the world, really. So Brent Petre is, is a very much an expert in this time period, and it helps us to understand Jesus better because it's the context that Jesus was in. He, he, we sometimes take Jesus out of context, and when we do that, we misunderstand him. But one of the things Dr. Petre says that whenever he's given a talk to Catholics, non-Catholics, um, you know, Protestant Christians, doesn't matter. Everybody says the same thing. When he asks them, hey, what, what kind of Messiah do you think the people were looking for? Almost everybody says that what they were really waiting for was a political Messiah, an earthly Messiah, a military Messiah, who's going to lead an armed rebellion kick out the hated Romans, start a war, essentially, drive the Romans out who are occupying the Holy Land, and basically take control back. And and that's not necessarily too far off base either, because, of course, there, there was a, a party, if you want to call it a party, it's kind of, I don't know if party is the right word. We're talking about, of course, the zealots. The zealots, there are different types of of Jewish groups that were out there at the time of Jesus. There are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes out in the caves by the Dead Sea, but there are also the Zealots, and one of them even became one of the Twelve Apostles, Simon the Zealot. Now, these guys were, they're, they're pretty dangerous. In fact, uh, they may have been associated with the famous Sicari, the Dagger Men. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Sicario. It's uh, about the drug trade. It's definitely not for kids. It's R-rated. Um, just keep that in mind. I, I thought it was a really powerful film, and uh, there's actually a quote 
about these dagger men from the first century. Um, I think the quote is actually from Josephus. It's at the beginning of the movie. And the Sicarii, these dagger men, what they would do is, if there was like a great gathering of the elite of society, Roman society in Jerusalem, whatever, they would slip into the crowd and talk about cloak and dagger. They would literally hide these daggers, these knives in their in their cloaks, and then at a certain time they would just they would just kind of stab these, you know, members of society, polite Roman society, and and create this huge disturbance. So it's kind of like it's almost like terrorism in a certain sense. People did, never knew when they were going to strike. And it was uh, meant to strike fear into their hearts, and it certainly worked. And it, it, I always think it's really amazing that Jesus was able to gather such disparate individuals to form his apostolic band. He would have people like Simon the Zealot, and he was somehow able to get him on board and say, listen, you've got amazing human qualities, and I want to redirect those in the right way. So, anyways, th- so this idea of a military messiah isn't that far off base, but uh, Bram Petre says that it's basically an exaggeration, uh, for the most part, this idea that everybody was waiting for a political messiah. The truth of the matter is that most Jews are waiting for something much more, something e- way bigger than any kind of military movement. They actually were looking for a new exodus. A new exodus. And you can't understand. Today's Thursday. Today is the day that we remember particularly what happened on a certain Thursday, on Holy Thursday, when Jesus instituted the Eucharist at the Last Supper. And you can't really understand. And, and later on, we're going to be sharing with you Father Rocky's latest video. Now, of course, this is a radio program, so but we'll, we'll, we'll play you the audio. And you can catch the whole video as well. We'll tell you how from his Eucharistic Encounter series. It's really important that you guys dial into this because we can't really understand the Eucharist. As we're trying to prepare for the Eucharistic Congress next year, you can't really understand how the Eucharist fits into salvation history without understanding this fact, that Jesus really wanted to set up a new exodus. And that was really the hope. That was really the hope because at the end of the day, Mark Twain was right. When Mark Twain the great writer, of course, the great wit, the great American wit, he he used to say this, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. It sure does rhyme. And that's definitely true when it comes to salvation history. God always acts the same way. When you look at all the different covenants that he made with his people all throughout time, including, of course, the new covenant in Jesus Christ, he always acts the same way. You're listening to the Kale Clark Show, 888-914-9149. So, so Brant Petre writes in his book, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, that at the time of Moses, the time of the first Exodus, this is exactly how God acted. He saved his people. He rescued his people. And there's a great hope in Jesus' time that God was going to recapitulate or recap, do it again, exactly as he had done it in the first exodus when he saved his people from slavery in Egypt. So obviously, one of the things that that the the exodus, when the exodus actually ended, the exodus from Egypt, it actually came to an end, not when they got out of Egypt, but when they arrived in the promised land. And that, of course, didn't happen with Moses, but it did happen through Joshua, who is the successor of Moses. Interestingly enough, Jesus' name is actually Joshua in Hebrew, which means God saves. 
It's an interesting factoid. You probably knew that. But in the Old Testament, the prophets always talked about this new exodus that was going to happen. And it's something that, that most Catholics aren't aware of. But there was a new exodus that was prophesied. And Bram Petre says there was going to be four things that would happen in the new Exodus. Number one, there would be a new Moses. And this again, this is this whole thing of recapitulation. God's going to do it again. Do it again. <laughs> like that song from Steely Dan, do it again. Back Jack, do it again. Well, even Jesus said John the Baptist is another Elijah. He's dressed like Elijah. He's wearing you know, clothing made of camel's hair. He's eating locusts and wild honey, super kosher. I mean, talk about eating bugs. We're all supposed to be eating bugs, according to the elites of society, although the King of England gets to wine and dine with the French president in a lovely banquet hall, but we have to eat bugs. Well, we're in good company, if that's the case, because John the Baptist, of course, he was into locusts, good protein source, a little sweetness of honey as well on top. Why not dip it in? But just as... There was a new Elijah in the form of John the Baptist. There's, of course, a new Moses, a much greater Moses in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So, number one, there's going to be a new Moses. Number two, there's going to be a new covenant. A new covenant. That's exactly what Jesus talks about at the Last Supper, the first Mass. This is the new covenant in my blood. Number three, there's going to be a new temple. A new temple. So, the temple that was in Jerusalem is not good enough. There's, no, there's going to be another temple going to be another temple. I know that if you go on YouTube and stuff, you'll find all kinds of videos about people saying there has to be another temple built in Jerusalem because this one was uh, the one that Herod's temple was obviously destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. There was a big military uprising, the Great Jewish War. Jesus prophesied this would happen too, by the way. And people are saying, well, there needs to be a third temple now built in Jerusalem before the Messiah can return. Well, I'm not so sure about that. But there does have to be a new temple. What, what that new temple is, maybe who that new temple is, uh, is another story for another day. But the fourth thing that would happen in the new Exodus is a, journey, a new journey to a new promised land. So, so this is kind of the key. This is kind of the key to understanding Jesus. It's also the key to understanding the Eucharist because we don't have this background. And this is one of the things that you guys are telling me. Uh, as you're messaging me about uh, the show with, with Rabbi Jason Sobel, that it really helped you guys appreciate your Catholic faith more to see it through the eyes of a rabbi. Um, and, and this is kind of the background that we're all missing. And so let's just talk about really quickly about this idea of Jesus as a new Moses. Because one of the things Rabbi Sobel said was that Jesus is not only a new Moses, he, he's, he's a much better <laughs> Uh, he, he does way more astounding things than, than God did through Moses, which is pretty astounding stuff if you read the book of Exodus. And we did a whole series on the Faith Explained show about the book of Exodus. I really enjoyed that. Because whenever I do this show, whenever I do the Faith Explained, whenever I'm doing this show, trust me, I learn as much as you guys do. I'm on the journey as well. And I really loved delving into the book of Exodus. And you can find that whole series in the archives on the Faith Explained page on Relevant Radio. Dot com should be there should be there in the archives if not let me know but okay let's talk about one of the things that Moses did was when he went to Pharaoh and said let my people go he had you know, Pharaoh didn't want to do it and there's all these signs that Moses did one of the things that Moses did was turning water into blood the waters of the Nile were turned into blood well Jesus does a lot better than that Jesus turns water into wine 
at the wedding feast at Cana, but then he turns wine later on into his blood at the Last Supper, at the first Mass. Incredible stuff. Incredible stuff. So, understanding that Jesus is a new and much greater Moses, a much greater deliverer, is really, really key to, to understanding this. So, obviously, Moses does eventually prevail. God sends these plagues, and eventually Pharaoh gives up. And Moses starts the journey towards the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey, as it says in Exodus chapter 3. So after they got out of Egypt, Moses spends 40 years wandering in the desert. And because of the disobedience of the people, it should have been a straight shot, but it took them a a lot longer. It's a circuitous route. And he didn't make it. Moses himself didn't make it into the promised land. Well, he kind of did get in there later at the Transfiguration, but that's another story. But he, he, he died, and when he died... The Bible says there was none like him in all Israel. And nor afterward did there arise in Israel any prophet like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. Deuteronomy chapter 34. Now, that's where Moses' story ends, but it's not the end of the story of Israel. And this is, this is pretty incredible. This is where Jesus really comes in. And i got to tell you something. I've got a wild, wild like, I've never seen this before. A wild prediction from a rabbi about what was going to happen when the Messiah showed up. You're not going to want to miss this. Got to take a quick break right now on the Kale Clark Show, but we'll be right back with this and much more. 888-914-9149. Be right back. explain it to others. It's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Hey, welcome back to the show. 888-914-9149 is the number to call toll-free to talk to me. On this Thursday, we're talking about the Eucharist and really how we don't understand it unless we understand what was going on in the Old Covenant time. Because really, the New Covenant, the New Testament, it's all about the Eucharist. Jesus says this is the New Covenant And the word is the same as testament. This is the New Testament, the New Covenant in my blood. We were talking about the fine work of the excellent scholar, Dr. Brant Petre. Uh, Got a great book, which you might want to pick up. Great reading as we prepare for the National Eucharistic Congress next July. Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. Now, obviously a couple disasters befell uh, the Jewish people in the Old Covenant after they got into the Promised Land. Um... They left, uh, but not of their own accord. Of course, there was the infamous Assyrian exile that happened when the ten northern tribes, the twelve tribes of Israel, the ten northern tribes, these became known as the lost tribes of Israel. Have they ever been found? Well, I've got news for you on that front. Uh, In 722 BC, the Assyrians took the ten northern tribes into exile. And they were allegedly never heard from again. They never came back. They kind of just mixed in with the nations, the the Gentiles, and no one knows where they are. And you might have, (laughs) there's lots of stuff on, again, you can find on the internet about the lost tribes of Israel, what happened to them. Um, Mormonism says they came to the shores of 
North and South America. I don't know about that. But uh, at any rate, here's what actually happened to them. They came back into the Catholic Church. What are you talking about, Kale? Well, St. Paul, this is one of the reasons why St. Paul wanted to go to the Gentiles so badly. Yeah, when he was do- when he- whenever he hit a town, he would, of course, hit the synagogue first and try to convince his fellow Jews Jesus was the Messiah. Some people listened, some didn't. And then he would go to the Gentiles. And, why- and he did that for a theological reason, because... It was thought that the ten northern tribes, they kind of mixed in with the Gentiles. Nobody could really kind of identify them as, as particular groups anymore. But essentially, if you, if you can reach the Gentiles for Jesus, you can bring all Israel back together in the Catholic Church under the one Messiah, Jesus Christ. So that's one of the reasons why he wanted to evangelize them so badly. But of course, and again, this is what's been going on in the readings um, over these last few days from Ezra, the tragic events of 586 B.C. when the Babylonians uh, took away the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. They're kind of located in the south where Jerusalem is. Uh, when the Babylonians invaded, destroyed Solomon's temple, carried the Israelites off into exile in Babylon. Lots of uh, weeping, and, and it was tragic. I mean, it was an absolutely tragic event, and, and God allowed this to happen. Although, although he did give his people clearly a second chance. And so they came back. Cyrus, the the Persian king, defeats the Babylonians, allows them to go back. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the wall with Nehemiah. And and this is is, um, a a great sign of hope. Um, And and, and there was a hope that there would be a new and greater Moses that would eventually show up. And Moses himself talked about this. Don't forget. In Deuteronomy, this is a famous prophet like me. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brethren. Him you shall heed. And the Lord said to me, they have rightly said all that they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak all that I command him. And everyone thought this is going to be the Messiah, this prophet like Moses, of course, much more than a prophet. God incarnate. Now, here I, I promised you before the break, I, I'd share this wild quote from a rabbi, and this is in uh, Brent Petre's book, uh, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. This is Rabbi Barakia. Rabbi Barakia, um, who lived in the third or fourth century, <laughs> this is a pretty amazing quote. He said, As the first redeemer was, so shall the latter redeemer, redeemer be. Who's the first redeemer? Moses. As the first Redeemer Moses was, so shall the latter Redeemer, the Messiah, be. What is stated of the former Redeemer? And Moses took his wife and his sons and set them upon a donkey. Exodus chapter 4, verse 20. Similarly, will it be with the latter Redeemer, as it is stated, lowly and riding upon a donkey. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Now, we know that this is exactly what happened with Jesus, because on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, what happened? Jesus comes into town riding on a donkey, and he's doing this on purpose. He knows exactly what he's doing. He could have rode in on a steed, but that's not, he did this to fulfill prophecy, like Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. But that's not all. This is what, this is what Rabbi Barakia said. This is pretty wild stuff. Check this out. As the former Redeemer, Moses, caused manna to descend, as it is stated, B. 
Behold, I will cause to rain bread from heaven for you, Exodus 16.4. So will the latter Redeemer cause manna to descend as it is stated, May he be as a rich grain field in the land, Psalm 72, verse 16. Okay, so the new Redeemer, the new Moses, according to the rabbis, was also going to cause manna to come from heaven. But of course, this is the Eucharist, a much, much more than the manna that the Israelites ate. And Jesus talked about this in his great sermon in Capernaum in John chapter 6. Your father ate the manna in the wilderness, and yet they died. But whoever eats of the bread that I will give will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John six fifty one. So he's fulfilling all these prophecies. And everything that was expected, he did. So if Jesus isn't the Messiah, he deserves an Oscar. Well, he is, obviously. But, but he, he, I mean, in every possible way, he's a new and greater Moses. And that's... That's exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about, about the Eucharist today. This is the new manna, the new manna. So this is only one element. There's so much that we could say here. So pick up a copy of that book. Uh, we can talk about this more and more as we, as we go through uh, these Eucharistic Thursdays leading up until next July, the Eucharistic Congress. But it, it, it's absolutely fantastic. All right. Um, got a message from a uh, great friend of the program, faithful listener, Paul from Youngstown, Ohio. You all know Paul. I had mentioned Mark Twain earlier in the program, and Paul wanted to tell me. He didn't want to come on air, uh, but he did want to say that he's listening, and he wanted to to give another quote from Mark Twain. Mark Twain has so many quotes, we could have a whole show on the quotes of Mark Twain. Mark Twain said, quitting smoking is easy. I've done it a hundred times. <laughs> uh, another gem, another gem from the great wit that is Mark Twain. Well, I, I told you off the top, uh, on this Thursday, it's the 28th of September, it's the feast day of a couple of interesting saints. Saint Wenceslas, good King Wenceslas. I'm not going to go into that, uh, but uh, I think I think they, uh, Maggie talked about that a little bit earlier today on uh, during the chaplet uh, on the Drew Mariani show. By the way, on Monday the chaplet is going to be live on video for the first time ever on Relevant Radio. That's super exciting. Uh, Drew, Maggie, coming at you in video format as well, just like we do with the Rosary family rosary across america so that's a that's a great milestone dan axe our video department does such an incredible job well the other saint of the day uh, uh really inspired this great quote from another saint that jesus christ became a filipino did you know that well who said that saint john paul ii saint john paul ii said that when he canonized today's saint San Lorenzo Ruiz, or Saint Lorenzo Ruiz. This, he's actually a, a pretty inspiring saint. He's the proto-martyr of the Philippines. The proto-martyr of the Philippines. What does that mean? It just means he's the first martyr of the Philippines. And I want to share with you a, a little bit about his life. Um, it's incredibly inspiring. And obviously the Philippines uh, is, is mostly a Catholic country. Uh, in the South, obviously, there, there are many Muslims who live in the South. Um, some things going on there, terrorist organizations. You probably heard about that. But uh, an incredible impact on the whole world um, for the faith. And so, San Lorenzo Ruiz was a convert to the faith. And, and here's how it all kind of happened. This actually happened, and there's a connection with Japan as well. 
because in the year 1549, St. Francis Xavier, who of course was one of the original Jesuits, and two other companions from the Jesuits, they finally reached, this was kind of a dream for them, to reach Japanese soil, and they wanted to evangelize in Japan. And it actually was, was pretty successful originally. Historically, Japan has always been a culture that has been incredibly difficult uh, for the church to, uh, to crack, to, to evangelize in. Um, that's another show for another day. It's a really interesting um, phenomenon. But uh, when, when the first Jesuits got to Japan, they were actually pretty successful initially. They got there in 1549, and by the end of the 16th century, Japan actually had 300,000 converts to Catholicism. Not, not bad. Not bad. But unfortunately, towards the end of that century, in the 1580s, there's a shogun. Remember the show Shogun? You remember that? Um, there was a, a, a Tokugawa shogun who was like, I don't know about this. I, I'm not, I'm not, I am not fond of this Catholic movement here. Because What was he actually afraid of? He was actually afraid that what was going to happen was that if Christianity spread in Japan, which, which he kind of saw as a as a Western religion, as a European religion, that that was going to lead to Europe trying to invade Japan and, and colonize it and take it over. So he, he decided to outlaw Catholicism, point blank. It's now illegal. So this led to an absolute deluge of martyrdom, and there's been so much ink that's been spilled about, about uh, the martyrs in Japan and films about it, and... Um, there's one that came out recently. I can't remember what it is. Um, Patrick Alec, I'm sure it'll remind me. <laughs> um, Andrew Garfield was in it. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Anyways, thousands of martyrdoms between 1597 and 1639. So different different groups were canonized uh, as saints, uh, these martyrs of Japan. Uh, the mo- Silence. Silence. That's the movie. That's right. That's right. Very controversial film, by the way, for, for theological reasons, but we'll... Again, that's that's for another day. But one of the groups of martyrs that were uh, killed for the faith in Japan included today's saint, Saint Lorenzo Ruiz and his companions. And Pope John Paul II canonized them in 1987. So Lorenzo, and actually his, his name was also Lawrence. You could say he was Lawrence as well. His father was Chinese. His mother was Filipino. And he was born in this section of Manila called Binondo, and actually, just before he was born, it, it, this little area kind of was only established about six years prior to uh, the birth of Lorenzo. And of course, Spaniards had colonized the Philippines, and there were there were some uh, settlers from China that were there as well who had converted to Catholicism while they were in the Philippines. And it, it kind of was like this interesting area, and there were a lot of marriages that happened between uh, Chinese and Filipino Catholics. And so, Lawrence, uh, again, his father was Chinese, his mother was Filipino, and so he, he learned um, different languages. He, he spoke Tagalog, of course, he got that from his mom. Uh, he was also very fluent in, uh, I think it was Mandarin. And so, anyways, that, that kind of gave him some interesting experiences, and he actually was an altar boy. The church was run by Dominicans that he went to, and he actually became a scribe. Just like St. Paul would hire a scribe, and he talks about this in his letters, and actually his scribe actually got in the New Testament, Tertius. He's like, hey, I, Tertius, wrote, you know, was Paul's scribe, and I wrote this, ha, 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 here I am. 
So that's kind of what he did, uh, Lorenzo Ruiz. He was a scribe. He would you know, be hired to write stuff for people and uh, keep written records of stuff. And eventually, you know, he's just kind of living a normal Catholic life. He got married when he was in his 20s. Uh, his wife's name was Rosario. And they had three kids. They had two sons and one daughter. And unfortunately, sometimes there, there is some injustice that happened. Um, the Spaniards weren't always fair. to when, Whenever there's kind of a controversy, sometimes uh, the native Filipinos kind of, you know, were, were persecuted against. And so... What happened one day was, and again, the, the details are really fuzzy about this. Um, something happened where somebody got killed. A Spaniard got killed. And basically, Lorenzo was accused of murdering this Spaniard. It's kind of sketchy. The, the, I, he didn't do it. Trust me, he didn't do it. But somehow he got blamed for this, and he knew that he wasn't going to get a fair trial. So he, he, he essentially left the country. He got on a ship. And along with them, there were three Dominican priests, a Japanese priest, and another layperson. And so they, they wanted to escape to Japan because, again, there were a lot of Catholics in Japan at the time. But unfortunately, the ship did not land where they wanted to go. I don't know what happened, but they, the ship actually landed in Okinawa. And that happened to be one of the cities where the church was being persecuted fiercely. So, sadly, as soon as they got there... The Shogun, remember the Tokugawa Shogun, he heard about this. He heard the, the ship showed up with some Catholics on it, and he's like, arrest these guys. So he, they got arrested, they got dragged before the authorities, and they were told, you, you must leave the country. And they're like, okay, fine. <laughs> so, But he said, oh, hang on here, one more thing. Before you go, you also have to renounce your Catholic faith. Just, just renounce your faith, no problem, and I'll let you go. And the reason why he did this, by the way, was he was trying to make make it look to the other people of Japan that Catholics weren't really serious about their faith. It's not a legit religion. It's so easy for them to give it up. Look how quickly they just give it up. And then he was kind of hoping that other Japanese people would say, "Ah, who wants to be a Catholic? These guys are they're weak. They're they're cowards. You know, whatever." But Lorenzo and his companion said. Absolutely not. We're not going to give up our Catholic faith. Yeah, I mean, if you want us to leave the country, fine, but we're not going to denounce Catholicism. So he said, all right, now let's see what's going to happen. So he, he so this group of six people, they were imprisoned. Uh, they eventually got transferred to Nagasaki, and they were tortured beyond belief during captivity. Uh, they were essentially waterboarded, and they were all kinds of cruel punishments happened to them. They would force them to drink water, and then guys would jump on their abdomen. They would put like these wooden boards on their abdomen and people would jump, the soldiers would jump on them and then water would, you know, like a, like a fire hydrant come out through their mouths, their nose. It, it was just really incredibly painful. Uh, bamboo knives, they would kind of like cut them with bamboo knives. They would psychologically torture them. Uh, one of the priests died on September the 24th in 1637. And then... The others were like, should we renounce our faith? And and they didn't. They didn't. Uh, wicked tortures. San Lorenzo, St. Lorenzo, he was, um, he was tied up. And then he and his companions were hung over these pits. And they had one arm that was not tied up. And the shogun basically said, look, all you have to do is just wave with your hand. Just give me a little hand signal here and I'll let you go. It's, that's a sign to me that you've abandoned the Catholic faith. I'll let you go. 
So they, they always had that temptation. So for days, they were, they were hanging over these pits for three days, and none of them did it. Lawrence said, I'm a Catholic. I wholeheartedly accept death for God. If I had many thousands of lives, I would offer them all for him. Never shall I apostatize. Never shall I give up the faith. You may kill me if that's what you want. To die for God, that is my will. So he did die along with another lay Catholic named Lazaro. And then the three priests who were actually decapitated. Uh, and they died on September the 28th, this day, on this day in 1637. So that is the feast of San Lorenzo Ruiz. Now, why did I say Jesus Christ became a Filipino? I didn't say that. JP II said that. Pope John Paul II said that. And he actually said that when he canonized San Lorenzo Ruiz. And, and here's what he actually said. This is a, it's on the Vatican website. You can, you can still look it up. It's still there. The archives go back. And uh, one of the things that he said was, you know, San, the 16 uh, Filipino martyrs, um, now, now I'm just going to cut through some of his remarks here. Uh, Pope John Paul II said, this is in Rome, by the way, this was in, uh, in 1987, but he had actually gone to the Philippines in 1981, and at that time, I forget how many people showed up, but at that time, it was the largest gathering in, in the history of the world of human beings. I, and Patrick Alog, I'm sure you can fact check me on that, let me know how many people were there. But Pope John Paul II said, now today, Filipinos have their first native-born saint. Saint Lorenzo Ruiz. This is a day of joy and happiness for the nation and for the church and your land. A time of prayerful gratitude to God for all who see in this new saint the highest recognition of the work of evangelization. And through that work of evangelization and conversion, Jesus Christ became a Filipino. He entered the hearts of your forefathers. He shared the hopes, the sufferings, the dramatic events of your nation's history. His grace transformed lives. His saving message shaped your culture. And he did not hesitate to call a humble son of Binondo, of Manila, to become one with him in the great mystery of his saving passion and death. Not in his own land, but far away in Japan, as a seed transported to another field, at the beginning of another heroic page in the history of evangelization in Asia. So it's actually a beautiful address by, um, we'll put it in the show notes, from uh, St. John Paul II. And it's, I thought that was a really interesting line, that Jesus Christ became a Filipino. And you could really say, Jesus Christ became an Italian. Jesus Christ became an African. Jesus Christ became an American. Because we have to recapitulate the life of Jesus in our lives. We have to become another Christ. We have to become alter Christus. Uh, as St. Jose Maria said, we have to become not only another Christ, we have to become Christ himself. He, he lives his life through us, through his body, the church, his mystical body on earth. We have to allow him to do this. This is how we become saints. This is what it's all about. Well, speaking of, Jim, do we have time for the clip from Father? Okay, all right, okay, okay. We got a special clip from you. Speaking of JP, too, from Father Rocky, on the other side of this break, you're not going to want to miss this. It's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888-914-9149. Be right back. Faith, facts, and fun. It's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Oh, thanks for playing that, Jim. We only have a couple days left to do it. September by Earth, Wind, and Fire. I love September. Love the weather, love the Christmas in the air, the leaves falling. I love it. Only sad thing is winter is coming. But that's that's. I love the changing of the seasons. Why not? 
I'll tell you what, it's, um, this is the, tis the season, uh, tis the day for a new video from Father Rocky. Now, before the break, we talked about St. John Paul II and how he canonized today's Saint San Lorenzo Ruiz uh, from the Philippines, the proto-martyr. Speaking of JP too, in this week's Eucharistic Encounters video with Father Rocky, he tells a, a great story about the Eucharist and St. John Paul II. Check this out. Did you know that John Paul II did something that no pope had done for a hundred years? That's absolutely right, and I was a witness of it. John Paul II, in 1982, did an outdoor Corpus Christi procession from St. John Lateran's Basilican Cathedral in Rome to Santa Maria Maggiore. And when he became pope, he told his advisors, hey, I've got an idea, let's do a Corpus Christi procession next year in the spring on the Feast of Corpus Christi in the streets of Rome. And they, they just wagged their head. Oh, he said, Holy Father, that hasn't been done for a hundred years. He said, I know, but it'd be good for the people. And they kept shaking their heads. And I said, you know, the streets are a mess. The traffic is a problem. It's just, it's going to be too chaotic. Holy Father said, I, I understand, but let's do it anyway. And though they had thought they would convince him, I said, Holy Father, this is 1982 and nobody's going to come. And Holy Father said, I'll come. And he did come. He came that first year. And a few people came with him that year, and he launched the revival of the reverence for the Holy Eucharist in the Catholic Church. And from Rome, it spread out throughout the whole world. I participated in the Corpus Christi procession in 1992, right after I was ordained as a priest. I witnessed what I consider is a miracle. At the beginning of the Mass, it was raining. The Mass was outdoors. But when the time for the offertory came and the consecration of the Holy Eucharist came, it stopped raining. And at the end of the Mass, the Holy Father took the Holy Eucharist in the monstrance with the humeral veil, and he led the procession down what's known as the Via Marolana. It's about one mile from St. John Lateran to Santa Maria Maggiore. And right in front of them, there were children who had just made their first Holy Communion. There must have been 150,000 people there. And when the Holy Father got to the main altar at Santa Maria Maggiore, he lifted up the Holy Eucharist and blessed the people. And then the deacon came and brought the Holy Eucharist into the church. And as soon as he got into the church and put Jesus in the tabernacle, the lightning flashed, the thunder roared, and it started raining cats and dogs. So for the time that Jesus was out there exposed to the elements, God the Father made sure it didn't rain on Jesus. That Corpus Christi procession began because St. John Paul II said, I'll come. And that's what I want to do. I want to invite all of you to come next July to the National Eucharistic Congress in Indianapolis. I'll come. I hope to see you there. Let's all show up for Jesus. Yeah, let's all show up for Jesus. Thanks to Father Rocky for that beautiful reflection on JP2. He said, I'll come, and I hope that you will come to Indianapolis on an incredible pilgrimage for the National Eucharistic Congress in July of next year. So you can start preparing now by signing up for Father Rocky's Eucharistic Encounters. 33 beautiful stories like the one you just heard. You're going to get a new video each week. You just heard the audio. Check out the video by going to relevantradio.com slash encounter. That's relevantradio.com slash encounter. You can sign up for Father Rocky's video series and find out more about the travel packages we've put together just for you 
so that you can get to Indianapolis with us for the, New, for the National Eucharistic Congress. I, I love this. And by the way, next Thursday, uh, Father is going to be joining me live on the Kale Clark Show to celebrate the next video release next week. I can't wait. These stories have been so powerful, and the videos are filmed at these beautiful uh, locations, um, really highlighting the majesty of our Catholic faiths. So you're not going to want to miss these. Great stuff. Fantastic stuff. Well, one of the things I promised I would share today on the Kale Clark Show, 888-914-9149, by the way, is the number to call. Uh, you might have seen this if you were on Twitter, if you were on X today. You might have seen the incredible post uh, on our show account, on the Relevant Radio account, by Miranda. And a lovely graphic about, it says, yesterday you said today. Yesterday you said today. And you might know that that was a, a tagline in a Nike ad, just do it. It's really kind of addressing the whole topic of procrastination when it comes to working out. Yesterday, you said today, but that really applies to a lot of different things. And uh, speaking of Twitter, I came across a tweet from Ben Meir, who has a really nice newsletter called Systems Sunday that you can sign up for. And as James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits, likes to say, you don't rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. How are you going to do this? How are you going to achieve it? That's a great question. So Ben Meir talked about this life hack called the four quarters method, the four quarters method. And it actually comes from Gretchen Rubin, who writes a lot about happiness. You might have heard of her. So this is really interesting, how to become more consistent. So here's what Ben Meir says. He said, whenever I used to hit a snag in my day, I'd think this, I'll wait until tomorrow for a fresh start. And this is how watching one Netflix show spirals into binging a whole season or how Eating one unhealthy snack can turn into a whole unplanned cheat day. Does that sound familiar? What if instead you viewed your life like a game with four daily quarters? You know, it's like an NFL football game. Thursday Night Football tonight has four quarters, right? What if you viewed your life like that with four daily quarters? You see, most people only play one to two solid quarters daily because they quit when things don't go exactly as planned. Now, imagine if you push that daily number, instead of only playing one or two good quarters a day, you push that to three or four well-lived daily quarters. This is how you'll close the gap between where you are now and where you want to be, physically, financially, emotionally, <laughs> I doubt even spiritually. And you can do this up to 400% quicker. Now, here's how to do it. Here's how to execute it. Step one, split your day into four quarters, your waking hours. Now, if you sleep eight hours a day, let's say you wake up at 6 a.m. Here's how that would look. Quarter number one, the morning quarter from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. Quarter number two, midday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Quarter three in the afternoon from 2 to 6 p.m. And the fourth quarter is the evening quarter from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. Then you go to bed. So what would you like to do in your four quarters of the day. That's step two. So here's some ideas. Quarter number one, from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m., you could do your morning routine. You could do a deep work session, whatever your big project is you're working on, focused, deep work. Quarter number two, midday, 10 to 2 p.m., 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. You could have a healthy lunch. You could do some exercise, maybe go on a lunchtime workout. Some people like to take a power nap. Do that in quarter number two. What about quarter number three in the afternoon from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m.? That's when you can take some meetings. Now, you don't always have 
and depending on where you work, you might not be able to set when these meetings happen. That's when you can do your meetings, your administrative tasks. Uh, maybe they don't take as much mental acuity as your focused deep work that you do in the morning. Stuff like that you can do in quarter number three. Quarter number four in the evening from 6 to 10 p.m., that's when you can spend quality time with your family, do some self-care maybe, do some prayer, do some spiritual reading, tune into the family rosary with Father Rocky after that. Everybody's situation is a little bit different, but the important thing to do is to be intentional with your time. You can kind of journal this, you know, you can kind of, how are you doing in, your, in the evening? Maybe you can, maybe as part of your, your examination of conscience, how did you do in each quarter? Well, I played terrible in the second quarter, but in the fourth quarter, I really closed it out. I, I really finished strong. Living intentionally. You can bounce back. So if you, if you're kind of, if you kind of make a, a bad choice, that doesn't mean the whole day is wasted. Don't give up. Don't give up. Say, ah, that was only one quarter. I still got three quarters to go. So it's a great way to, uh, to look at your life. And next time you hit a rough patch in your day, don't wait till tomorrow. Don't say, don't, don't have that be, be said of you. Yesterday you said tomorrow. Don't procrastinate. You can start right now. Just hit the next quarter and play the game. Play the game of life well for the glory of God. How about that? Speaking of four quarters, pray for my fantasy football team. I'm 0-3. Should I start Jared Goff tonight for the Lions against the Packers? I don't know. I don't know. That's my big conundrum over the next few minutes. But... Uh, Glad you enjoyed your time with me. Hopefully you did on the K.O. Clark Show today. Keep it locked right here on Relevant Radio. Trending is coming up with Timory, followed by Father Rocky and the Family Rosary Across America. Hey, we're doing a fun series on the Faith Explained, too, called Jesus 101. We're talking tomorrow about the greatest comeback of all time. Speaking of fourth quarter comebacks, overtime. Jesus coming back from the dead, the resurrection. Don't miss it, 1230 Central. Join me live. You can check all of our relevant radio programming via podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We're everywhere. Maybe the easiest way is through the relevant radio app. If you haven't downloaded it yet, don't wait. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't say yesterday you said tomorrow. Do it now. Do it now. Download it. Share the show with a friend. Share it on social media. There's great share tools there. Help us to reach the world for Christ through the media. Jim Schaefer produced. Miranda sitting in as well. Patrick Alog took your phone calls. I'm Kale Clark. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy.